So this is where we picked up uh, verse 15 in Acts chapter 17. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Um, and so when we get to Athens, we're going to see kind of a unique people group. When we went to Berea, what, again, what was the description of the Bereans? We said they were noble-minded, but what were the things that, that were described of the Bereans? Like, why, why were they more noble-minded, at least compared to the Thessalonians, as, they, uh, as Luke you know, describes this group? What was it about them? Kind of two major things. When Paul, she, they searched the Scriptures, okay, and that was the second thing, and they received it, with joy. Received it yeah, the joy, the word he says is eagerness, but I think same, similar, similar ideas, that, that kind of eager expectation. What does this man have to say? Understanding that if this is, you know, really, if Jesus is the Messiah, again, Paul's message when he went to the synagogues was that the Messiah had to die, the Messiah would rise again, and he would, he would argue from the scriptures, and then that Jesus who they would have at least heard about making pilgrimages to Jerusalem, um, this Jesus was or is that Messiah, that fulfillment. And so, um, so as, as he's kind of sharing those things, that they are eager to hear it, but they're not just taking it in and accepting what he's saying. They're going for themselves and looking at the Scripture and studying the scripture for themselves to make sure that that is true. So we had some good conversation. Again, for the Bereans, we don't see a whole lot about them. There's no letters to the Berean church. Um, and so we don't see a whole lot of like what happened after Paul's visit. Um, uh, reference about a Berean a little bit later in chapter 20, I believe. Um, but uh, again, not much there. Same thing when we get to, he gets to this next place. He gets to Athens. And uh, we, we only see a little bit of what happens at this place, but again, very instructive for what we're going to talk about in the future. Now, in Athens, uh, had a little bit different culture. And so this, this culture was, um, you know, the philosophers. That's one thing that, uh, you know, in ancient Greece, we th- when we think about Greece, we think, you know, probably a lot about what we think about with Athens. But Athens uh, got, gave us democracy. Um, Athens gave us uh, art and architecture, uh, particular styles, but our, our, uh, they also gave us the philosophers, you know, the lovers of wisdom, if you want to translate that word in Greek. Now, the philosophers were known for debating, and Paul would pick up that language in 1 Corinthians when he talks about the debaters of this age and uh, centrally thinking probably when he went to Athens, these, these type of people. Now, we all probably have somebody that we know is a debater, and uh, there might be some of us in this room that like to debate. Um, what, uh, what is it about debating and discussing ideas that, you know, people seem to be drawn to? Why do people like to debate ideas? Does anybody know a debater? Somebody who would, you know, whenever there's a moment, they want to discuss a particular idea. And you might say, ah, I don't really want to talk about that. But they want to talk about it. Um, anybody know anybody like that? Married to somebody like that? Uh, <laughs> uh, child of somebody like that? Why, why, why do people like to debate? Now, I would, prob- I would venture to say there is something that all of us love to appeal to or argue about, about why something is better than another. Usually, I would say fundamental, probably um, one area that we probably all could identify with is your favorite Mexican restaurant. <laughs> Now, unless you hate Mexican, which is a small percentage, I wager, in this room, 
somebody has their favorite Mexican restaurant, and you would probably go out and say why your Mexican restaurant is your favorite. Could you think about, does anyone have a favorite Mexican restaurant? One that you typically go to? Are you guys, just me and you are the only ones? Every time I have this discussion with high schoolers, middle schoolers, but I guess you're more refined, like, <laughs> right? So you can't think of why. Okay. I mean, we all have something. Better chips, you know, better cheese dip, better whatever. That draws us to a particular place. It could be the atmosphere. It could be, you know, it could be the food. It could be something else. Um, it could be a mariachi band that comes in on Thursday nights or something. I don't know. Some of you are drawn to that. Some of you avoid that night. But you can probably at least think of some fundamental fact. There's something that you would probably get in some sort of engagement with with somebody else and say, like, no, 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 this place is better or this is better. It could be a movie. It could be a book. Now, why do people, why do people debate these things? Why do people argue over um, what's better or not? Some people want to prove that they're right or superior. Okay. It's a bold statement. What's that? Some might want to find out the truth. Some might want to find out the truth. Okay, that could be. That's true too. We're anxious for people to agree with us. We're anxious for people to agree with us. Okay, that's that's true. That's true. Anything else? Could be power struggle. Could be a search for truth. It could be just search for belonging or agreement. And so all these things kind of come into come into play especially when you think about your own beliefs or what we believe about the world around us, um, whether it's political views, whether it's, uh, you know, something I would say as silly, but it's not silly, right, you know, as, as food choices that you make, um, but probably not as important as what we believe fundamentally about who God is and really how God wants us to behave. If it came down to why we do what we do, it's sometimes a function, it's, it's always a function about what we believe, you know, our actions follow our beliefs. And so when we get into debates, it might be for understanding, it might be for refinement, it might be for asserting, you know, your beliefs over somebody else's, it might be just for a sense of belonging. So have that kind of as in mind, because the Athenians were known for this kind of attitude, um, uh, specifically with philosophers, but it was a hotbed for philosophers, and since they flourished there, the, the kind of the populace had that same same attitude as we kind of think about it. We'll dive a little bit deeper into this as uh, as we read through. So, verse sixteen. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what his new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. 
Okay, so just to start out, remember Paul made his way from Berea, and it was a couple hundred miles all the way to Athens. So instead of jumping from city to city, and, and so the distance is now greater, he stopped going from the uh, Via Ignatia, uh, which would have been the road that would have gone to the western side of Greece, if, I guess west side for you guys, and then uh, would have gone off over the Adriatic if he wanted to make his way to Rome. But he stopped that trail from what he had been traveling from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea and jumped down to Athens. And so he's gotten away from those that are chasing him, uh, which happened on his first missionary journey when he was in Asia Minor. They kept pursuing him, the Jews did. And so what is he doing now in Athens? Before he goes to the synagogue, it says that he is... He is waiting, right? It says, while he was waiting for them in Athens. Again, who, who is he waiting for? If we go back to verse 15. Silas and Timothy, right? His ministry companions. He had, he had broken away from them, presumably because he was, he's the one that had the target on his back, that he got away, allowed Silas and Timothy to stay there. You know, it's possible that Timothy, again, was in, in Philippi, um, or sorry, Thessalonica, that Silas was in Berea with him because... Earlier it said that Silas and Paul made their way to Berea. Um, but in any case, he's just waiting for them in Athens. Um, why would you say that? He did write this. He did write this. And so it's hard to tell where Luke is in the story. At some points, you know, when he made his way from Asia Minor um, to Macedonia, that he said, we went there. And then in Philippi, there was a we. And then... Uh, he kind of drops the we and starts talking in third person there. So it's possible that Luke is with them and traveling with them. We kind of we, and he'll pick up the we a little bit later. Um, but for now, not sure exactly where he's at. And some would debate that maybe he was from Philippi because of that language. Um, some debate that he was from um, Troas because that's where we picked up the the language. And some say um, some other places as well. So we're not exactly sure. Um, but even if he's with them. Um, Paul is definitely waiting on his other ministry companions to, to join him on his way. So he's just waiting here in Athens. And as he's waiting, um, what, what happens? First, why do you think he's waiting on them? Because it doesn't say he goes out and he starts like preaching. It doesn't say he goes to the synagogue just yet. <laughs> why do you think he's waiting for them to come to him? What's that? He probably had an agreement to meet in Athens. Okay. So he had, he had an agreement maybe to, to wait in Athens. Okay. And then... He wasn't getting taxed or emails. <laughs> it's true. That's true. So while he's waiting there, he's, gonna, he's, he's at least hopefully not moving on. Now, what happened when Paul went to a place so far that he's made it, you know, sometimes a few days, sometimes a few weeks, usually what happened after Paul started engaging in ministry? controversy, and then what happened? They run him out. out of town. So so usually the first thing that Paul does is go where? Synagogue if they have one. Go to the synagogue if they have one. So we don't see him 
seeking a synagogue. We don't see him preaching. We see him waiting. So there could be practical reasons why he's waiting there. It could just be like, hey, we're gonna, I'm going to pick up uh, where these guys left off. Although if he makes it to the next place, he could then you know, find somebody to, to leave that message with, presumably, because he did have people um, coming down with him, although they were probably the messengers going back up, sending word. Um, and so... Uh, so he's waiting. It could be for practical reasons, being cautious, you know, usually having several people around um, to engage in ministry. At other times, there was threats to his life. You know, he, he was stoned. Um, he was thrown in jail. And so just, you know, out of maybe practical reasons uh, that he, he is waiting for them before he's engaged in ministry. But while he's waiting, so it says like while he's waiting, and, and that's, that's how... You know, I take this as while he's waiting, he's not engaging in those things because typically when he went to a city, Luke always said that he went and did these things. He went to go find a place of prayer. He went to go find a synagogue. Um, and that was usually the first thing that Luke describes. But the first thing that Luke describes here is that he was waiting for them. But something happens while he was waiting. And it says that his spirit was provoked within him. What was it, if you see read the end of that verse, what was it that provoked his spirit within him? Okay, so, right, that the city was full of idols. So a few hundred years before Paul gets to Athens, now Athens has definitely declined in its um, popularity, uh, or as far as, you know, it's it was a cultural center, but it wasn't one of the major uh, cities in Greece at this time. Uh, Corinth was larger. Thessalonica was larger. About this time, there was only about five to maybe 10,000 uh, voting citizens. So, you know, where Thessalonica was a couple hundred thousand. Um, and so, uh, at least as far as voting people, there were other in that population. Some would say students, some would say lovers of art. Because at that time, several centuries beforehand, so the 4th or 5th century B.C., you know, Athens was a powerhouse. If you've read about ancient Greece, it was always about Athens and what was that other major powerhouse? Sparta, yeah, there's two. And sometimes they, and it was that time of the city-states where they all, you know, every city inside of Greece, Greece was kind of a more of a, a nation but a collection of um, cities that had their own, uh, you know, had their own governments, had their own um, ways of life, that had their own uh, armies. And so Athens was one of those. Sparta was another one. And, you know, you, usually if you studied uh, Athens and Sparta, you know, they had different ways of government. They had different ways of training. You know, uh, Sparta engaged in training up child, um, you know, warriors. Where Athens again was more on democracy and and uh, you know philosophy and, and art and culture and so some of those things. So it's waned over the years by the time that Paul gets there. But you're going to see the vestiges of everything that. Um, Athens was known for. They were known for their architecture, for their temples that were built, um, for their artwork. And because of that, it was seen as a place of tourism and a place of learning uh, more than a city center or, again, um, a, a major uh, metropolis. But definitely a place to, that people would stop on their way uh, when they're in Greece. And so as Paul you know, looks around the city, he's seeing all of these things, and he's seeing what's left over, and he's seeing kind of this liberal, um, you, know, uh, you know, people and the way they, they engage in the culture that is around them. 
And it says it provoked his spirit. And so that word provoked is nearly the same word. It's, it's, a, it's a similar word that um, was described of Paul and Barnabas when it says that they got into a sharp disagreement when Paul and Barnabas disagreed about what to do with Barnabas' cousin Mark before they made their way on this journey. We know that the end result of that sharp disagreement was that they parted ways. But for Paul, um, this sharp disagreement was internalized. And, it, uh, and, and so some versions, uh, translations, um, might say that he was greatly distressed, but another might be even to the point of anger, that he was infuriated with what he was seeing. It really got to him being in the city, waiting for his ministry companions, and so we see what happens. No matter how hard he's trying to maybe stay on the sidelines or to wait it out um, for his ministry to companions to be there, whether for protection or just, you know, I don't want to get run out of town from wisdom, um, that just being, being sitting out of the game is something that it's hard for him to do. And so how do you think that these idols provoked him? What do you think it was about that that you know, cause this agitation within Paul. Because we know it did it, but what do you think about it would provoke him or agitate him or get him infuriated? Maybe he could think of people showing more interest on their rivals rather than Christ. Okay. You said rivals? Idols. Is that idols? Okay. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Okay, so people that are more focused on idols over Christ. That would have been probably similar to no matter where he went, right? Especially where Christ is not. And so that wouldn't have been something new necessarily. So what about the idol worship do you think would have kind of pushed him over the edge? And when he, go into, when he goes to a Jewish synagogue, he, you know, he would go to them and probably there would be some agitation because they're in darkness, Right? Like, you know, you kind of you read in his letters where he's like, you've been, you, you've been given the oracles of God, right? That, that um, in the Old Testament scriptures, there was a pointing to this Messiah, and you just haven't connected the dots, right? You know, there's, there, there can be that kind of irritation that you might have when you're teaching a child or, you know, teaching a student or talking to somebody, and you're like, how can you not see it, right? It's right there in front of you. How can you not connect the dots, Right? And so that's probably maybe some of the understanding, but you see patience that Paul has with, um, with those that are in the synagogues, right? His brothers. And he had been to places where there are, you know, pagan worshipers. But what is he now confronted with? Not necessarily something new, but something maybe exaggerated is that he's surrounded by this idolatry all around him. And that it's not just something that he sees in the engagement with others, but it's just widespread around him, and he's, it's starting to affect him. Uh, has anybody visited a city where you just kind of felt like you were like in a place of like darkness? What's that? <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, what, do you have a city in mind that you're, you're thinking about? And there's several, right, that you, you could probably name on a list. But what's, is there any one that you're like, you just felt this kind of oppression? Dubai, Bahrain. okay, Berlin. Bahrain, Berlin. Well, slow down, slow down. Let's just pick. <laughs> let's pick one of them. Let's pick one of them. What was it about one of those cities that? Well, like in, in Dubai, there's a mosque on every corner. 
Okay. Um, you know, if you're there during Ramadan, uh, you know, you can buy something to eat before the sun goes down, but they won't let you eat it there in the restaurant. You've got to take it home. You know, I mean, it, the whole culture is, is uh, steeped. Okay. Okay. So the whole way of life is, you know, is, is uh, centered around their religion. And because of that, if you're not a part of their religion, and especially if you, you know, if you are religious and if you follow Christ, you see that what they follow is folly. How Paul would Paul would describe it. What are some other places? India. India. Okay. I mean, you can smell it, like the incense, the music. It's all around you. Okay. It does feel like that. Okay, but for, yeah, but you know, different religion, but for for similar things. Uh, I felt that when I went to Rome, um, you know, different parts of Rome, especially with over near the Vatican, um, is that you know, I, I just felt like we you know, go to all these churches, but the churches were just ended up being like you know places to look at instead of like actual places of worship. And sometimes you go to a place like that, and there is a worship service going on. Uh, or at least, you know, what they would call it, um, but it just kind of feels like something's missing. Um, something is, you know, there's, there's something sterile about, about the environment. And so there are places that you go to that, you, I don't know, you just kind of feel, feel that. And there are places in America that you might feel just about the culture in general, you know, cities that are known for certain things. Um, I remember going to uh, Sedona. Uh, has anyone ever been to Sedona out west? Uh, they're known for like new age mysticism. It's weird. You know, you just go to one place and they're talking about going to these vortexes um, where you get spiritual healing or buying these rocks and you're just kind of like, I, I don't know, it's just kind of confusion, right? You know, for, for, for you know, confronted uh, with, wow, these people are in darkness. That just doesn't always come out, you know, even though people believe those things. In, in our cities right here, um, you just sometimes see it outwardly that disturbs you and kind of provokes you. And so for him, he felt that because of what he was surrounded by. And there's several temples that are around uh, in Greece. I'll mention some of those in, in just a second. Um, uh, altars all around, you know, artwork, wherever, you know, just surrounded by these things. And he's, he's waiting. He's just, he's provoked. And I, I can, I can, you know, feel like that sense of burden is upon him. So where did Paul then go? Because of that. He's trying to wait. He's trying to be good. He's trying to not to get engaged. <laughs> but he just can't help it, right? And so where does he go? He goes to the place that he always goes. And it says that he goes to the synagogue. Yes. Yeah, so, um, and so, uh, so it's interesting that, right, the idolatry about him caused him to go to the Jews, you know, and, and first and, and do what, what, he has normally done to get off the sideline. You know, again, we don't know how long he's waiting, but, but Paul, you know, Luke's saying he's waiting. So it says he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. And so we see just Paul like expanding. So instead of, you know, targeting the, the, the synagogues, and that's usually how kind of Luke described it. He would go to the synagogue and then people he kind of encountered in the way. Usually it was like the people he encountered in the way uh, actually caused problems, right? He healed a guy, and then all the people mobbed him from the, the temple of Zeus. Or, uh, you know, he, he cast out the demon while he was in uh, Philippi, and then caused a riot, you know? So usually the people that he engages with um, outside of, of the synagogues are the ones that 
you know, seem to cause, cause him trouble. But he's, he's actually going in, in the marketplace, wherever he's at, he's discussing. And the reason this, this kind of passage becomes kind of a, a central focus for even some churches to say, this is what we want our ministry to look like, is that Paul is in a place of, you know, of darkness. And because of that place, he goes and seeks out those that are religious, and he goes and seeks out just whoever he comes in contact with. Right? Going to the market every day would have been just a common occurrence, just to whether he is buying goods. We don't know if he's uh, selling goods at this place. Um, you know, he was a tent maker, as seen from other, um, other letters that he's written. We don't know if he's you know, setting up shop in any of the marketplaces. Um, probably not yet. But uh, wherever he's at, he's kind of engaging with the people. Whoever just happened to be there is what it says. And so um, those who happen to be there, right, or, you know, what does he say? It says specifically, a little bit later, that he is talking about uh, Jesus and the resurrection. Again, that's typical of what he would talk about. He would talk about why the Messiah had to die depends on who he's talking about and what they understand about a Messiah, um, that uh, this Messiah, uh, if it was Jews, right, that this Messiah had to die, this Messiah had to ra- be raised again, and that Jesus was this Messiah. For a Gentile, he might have a different tact. We only see that in, in a couple places about the speeches that he's given to a, a larger Gentile audience, but it was more about creation, and it was more about this God, and that this God sent his son, or, or this God would judge, but this God had... Um, salvation through his son, Jesus, who would rise, who rose from the grave. And so it's because of that, that it's kind of fallen on the ears of some people that were there. And it says in verse 18, that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. So there are those that this is a, a, a meeting ground of people who, you know, uh, are known for their beliefs in you know, different philosophies. Again, these wouldn't be the, the uh, only philosophies. You, know, you would have had others that would have cropped up. Um, and again, depending on the century, it would have been following uh, different people, different leaders. But at this time, these are kind of two of the major philosophies uh, that are rampant in Athens in this day. And so he's emboldened to talk to these people. One of them is the Epicureans. Um, so the Epicureans teach that happiness is the greatest good. It's to seek modest pleasure in order to attain a state of tranquility, freedom from fear, and the absence of bodily pain. The Epicureans, they were materialists, meaning that everything came from matter that you see around you, and then when you died or when it died, everything went back to matter. So there was no afterlife. For the Epicureans. But pleasure or happiness was there, and because there was no really afterlife, there's nothing really to work for after this life. And so free from pain and focus on pleasure and happiness was really their ultimate goal. Are there anybody, is, is there people today that we engage with that that is their major philosophy? Mostly. mostly? <laughs> you say, oh, you say mostly uh, the people that we engage with, right? Um, yeah, why is that? Why is that such an appealing, you know, belief system? It's self worship. Why do you say that? Everything's, everything's centered on you. Everything's centered on you. And why is everything centered on you? Because it's all about how you feel. 
Yeah, how you feel. Your happiness, your pleasure, right? And if something or somebody brings you unhappiness or pain, um, then, you know, you, you would change your lifestyle or cha- try to change their lifestyle in order to, uh, you know, align with, with your own. Um, I would say for, you know, a lot of wealthy you know, countries, um, that, that is kind of the greatest goal. You know, why, why have a life of pain or discomfort when, you know, pleasure just seems, seems better? I would say, you know, we don't necessarily, we don't, you know, we don't feel um, that much different. That just isn't our so central focus, right? You know, if we have pain, we want to alleviate that pain, right? We'll take medicines for, for some of those things, but that isn't our ultimate goal. And we know that, through pain and through trial, that what comes out of it? What's that? A sanctification, right? So, so actually, it's through pain and through trial that actually good comes out of that, where they would say that good doesn't come through those things, and so we try to seek however we can to avoid those things. So that was one major philosophy. The other major philosophy at that time was Stoicism. We kind of have that word, you know, if you're stoic, what, what would you say that somebody is what? What's that? No emotions, okay? So stoics, they teach the development of self-control and fortitude as a means of overcoming destructive emotions in order to develop clear judgment and inner calm and the ultimate goal of freedom from suffering. Now, they would say that every, inside every person is a spark of divine. Now, the Epicureans are more on the atheist side, and the, Epicure, uh, the Stoics uh, believe that inside everybody and everything was a spark of the divine that they called the Logos. Where have you guys heard the Logos before? In John 1, right? You know, so, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and that Word translated is logos and so inside each person but when we see when they mean logos right it's not some sort of spirit or emotion that this logos is reason and it was a rational principle that bound everybody together so living by reason is the ultimate goal and since everybody has this spark of the divine inside them there is a sense of universal brotherhood and a high ethic towards one another, where the Epicureans didn't necessarily feel like that. It's all about you. Um, you know, there sometimes was harmony in living, you know, uh, out of self-preservation by living in harmony with other people, but it was very self-focused, whereas the Stoics felt like that reason was the highest goal and the highest good, and driving out every emotion and living by reason alone was the main focus. Do people believe this today? What's that? Okay, where, do, where would we see this pop up, this idea? Monasteries. monasteries, okay. We would see that, yeah, as far as a, a religious order, that they would see, we see that in, in monasteries. Yeah, I would, say, I would say that we see this in, in culture um, heavily in that yeah, science is something that should be elevated and revered. I would say that, you know, when we, we look in the past and we see that uh, different religions, um, you know, different gods are what was seen as far as worship in the past. And the priests were, you know, second to the kings. They were maybe the king makers. That science is, is what people revere today. And you hear that a lot. Well, you know, I hear, you know, they talk about whatever, you know, if it's global warming or 
uh, outbreaks of disease or earthquakes. There's this kind of, you know, vague, you know, group of scientists, whoever they are. But we revere them. We, you know, take them for, well, I say we, as in Americans and, and really, you know, first world countries, we kind of take them as, as what they're saying is, uh, as fact and as, as truth and that they are the ones that we should revere and understand. And so reason is the kind of belief that, you know, you should focus on in your life. So uh, one author says, For the Stoics, the divine was everywhere in everything. They were pantheists who believed that at death the human spirit returns to God for fire recycling. In that sense, for them, there was no personal afterlife. For they said that everything happens is God's will and should not be resisted. Their code was an austere one of both personal self-denial and apathy. The Epicureans, on the other hand, were as close to being atheists as people who still made reference to the gods could be. They held that death was final, that everything happened by chance, and that the gods were of shadowy substance, remote and disinterested at best in humanity. And therefore, life should be spent in pursuit of the highest form of pleasure, the removal of all pain. And so you have these two major groups that kind of represent what you believe. Now, you would have fallen in one camp or the other, more or less. I mean, there are the, the kind of in-betweens, but because these are dominant philosophies, it would have been, you know, like a political view. Like, you, do you lean this way or do you lean more that way? And you may adopt some things from one side or the other, but those were dominant, debated, outwardly seeking, and the philosophers would have, um, you know, if you, if you went to the, the areas that they were in near the marketplace, you would hear them out in the courtyard and talking and describing these things. All around you, you it would not have been uh, misunderstood what they believed, and perhaps what even people believed as well. If we look at our own culture, you would say probably if you talk to somebody long enough, you would see like they believe kind of in a mishmash of all of these things, right? There's a sense where we revere science and reason and that held that as you know, supreme. There's maybe a reference to gods as maybe a, you know, a god, more likely, as a maybe impersonal kind of you know, god that Obviously, there might be a creation, but I don't know about that, or some outright denial of a God. Um, you see kind of a mix of, again, like a focus on self-pleasure and trying to kind of root that out. And so really what we have in, in our culture is just kind of like a, a, a grab bag of all of these different things, not really understanding why we believe whatever we believe. Now, the philosophers, their goal was to try to keep seeking a consistency with their belief, at least along a certain train of thought. And if you believe one thing, everything else is going to fall in line with a particular way of how you behave and what you do, right? The way you live comes out of what you believe. And And so Paul is, again, surrounded by these people, engaging with these people. And so when he engages with them and shares with them what he believes... How do they respond? They call him. They call him a babbler. They call him a babbler. Uh, it's really. It's interesting that word. It's kind of a mishmash of two different words, um, which is seed talker, uh, and um, which makes no sense for us. <laughs> what does that mean? So a seed talker, or probably more thought of as a seed picker. Uh, like a bird who picks up seeds along the ground. And the idea was that they would have used this term to describe somebody who would have just grabbed different ideas from different places and then kind of 
thrown them out and spoken of them without a really true understanding of what he meant. So for these philosophers, they just think that he's picked up some religious talk from different places that he's been, that he's not really a wise, learned person, but he's just kind of sprouting out different ideas and perhaps even coming up with his own religion. For these philosophers, they're like, you know, we believe what we believe, and we can debate with you and talk with you, you know, all day long about what we believe and why, why you should live the way you live because of a consistent thought. For them, it just made no sense to them. Plus, another thing that he talked about was this resurrection. And for them, where do you get this idea of a resurrection? Because they had no concept of a resurrection. They didn't believe in a resurrection. So because of that, um, they, they want to find out a little bit more. So they want to know a little bit what he's talking about. They called him a preacher of foreign gods. Um, and so they wanted to hear what he had to say. There was also an Athenian law that said you couldn't, Create as, as amazing as this is with um, you know a multitude of gods that they worshipped, you couldn't create your own religion. Um, so uh, that was something that you know Socrates was tried for famously in the past, and that his beliefs were poisoning the minds of the youth, and so they actually poisoned him and uh, set him on trial and uh, you know sentenced him to death for this. And so for Paul, they wanted to make sure at least some think that they wanted to make sure that uh, he wasn't spreading some new religion. And so where does it say that they took him? Yeah. So it says they brought him to the Areopagus. Now, this, this term Areopagus uh, can be thought of in two different ways. Specifically, the Areopagus was, uh, means the rock of Ares. Um, so it was a hill outside of the city or just below the Acropolis where all of their city was kind of built or their major, you know, people sometimes lived on the outside, but all their city center was built on top of this high hill. Um, It's usually, if you see pictures of Athens, you'll see kind of the Acropolis with the uh, Pantheon and some of the other areas, uh, temples and some things that are ruins up top of there. The Areopagus was kind of a rock that was a little bit lower than that. And uh, it was, it was above the marketplace. Now on this rock, um, this is where the god Ares was supposedly tried for the murder of Poseidon's son. And so that's why it was known as the Rock of Ares. Now, they would have used this in, in classical Greek times um, to uh, have court cases heard there. It could have been a murder trial, a civic trial, religious matters, um, and so more serious cases. Uh, but that was actually a specific location outside, or inside um, of Athens. Because they had this court held there, the governing body was also known as the Areopagus. And so the court that met there to hear these criminal cases was the Areopagus. Now, during Paul's time, um, it's debated that they typically uh, met outside of the um, Agora, the marketplace. And it says that that's where Paul was kind of speaking to whoever he could uh, in the royal portico. And the philosophers often met in an adjacent portico, and that's where you would kind of hear uh, them talking. And so it's possible that that is where he was sent. So again, some say that he went up to this rock and they kind of wanted to hear a little bit more of what he was talking about. And others would say that he probably went to hear this governing body that used to meet on the rock, but now met in a different place to kind of hear what he had to say. This wasn't likely a formal trial, but something that the philosophers were like, you know, wanted to kind of have something, though, where he could share his ideas 
and they can maybe, you know, especially since the philosophers, you know, you have two different camps, two different groups that have two different belief systems, maybe to a, a less, uh, a new, more neutral site, that Paul could share what he's saying. Again, others might say that they really wanted to hear him out to make sure he wasn't, you know, spouting out some new religion, and so they could hear what he was talking about. So whether it was this hill or whether it was actually this court, um, he went to this place and he was able to share what it is that he believed. Now, what do you think they really wanted to hear from Paul? Like, if he's just some babbler, if he's just some, somebody kind of spouting out, like, what, what do you, why, why even have this court case? Now Luke kind of, kind of alludes to this in verse 21. When he kind of describes, he says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So for them, Paul is coming in and saying something new. And so they want to hear what this new thing is. It was, uh, I, you know, I, I couldn't quite tell from, from an account whether um, this ancient historian was saying this to be true or just saying this as descriptive of the Athenians of the Athenians, but when Philip of Macedon was outside their city gates, it was said that the Athenians were inside going from house to house talking about what was, you know, what the latest news was, not realizing that the latest news was knocking on their door ready to conquer them. And so that was just kind of the description about the Athenians that they just wanted to know, you know, hey, what's new? What's the latest thing? What's, what's new? All, all the while not really caring about what true news was. Um, that they just wanted the, the, the new thing and see how they could either put it down and dismiss it or perhaps even adopt it. I would say probably the former as dismiss it, especially if you adhere to a particular philosophy um, or not. So how would you say these debaters, these philosophers, are like the Bereans? So we now have a contrast between this group that we saw Paul leaving uh, earlier. In what way would you say that they're like the Bereans in this encounter? They're eager to hear. Okay? Now, remember the Jews at first were eager to hear and then wanted to hear no more. When they heard... They wanted to hear him some more. So they're eager to hear what he has to say. Any other ways that maybe they're like the Bereans? We don't have a whole lot to go off of the Bereans, but we kind of talked about you know, what described the Bereans last week. They're eager to assess. Okay. And so had a more formal process, like let's take you to this place or this governing body and let's hear you out some more. Let's elevate you to this platform hear what you're having to say, and digest that uh, a little more. How are they unlike the Bereans? Okay. It could be, yeah, for, for entertainment purposes, and we'll see that how they respond. Um, that for some, that was definitely true. Um, what's that? They're definitely not checking the scriptures. Now, what, how, would, how would they evaluate what's true or not? Okay, now for the Stoics, right, you'd say that would line up, uh, you know, specifically with their philosophy, right, that reason. So let's, you know, does it make sense? Does it pragmatically work? Does it, you know, does it flesh out in thoughtfulness? Uh, well, how would an Epicurean respond to that? How does it make me feel? How does it make me feel? You know, does that feel good? 
Um, is an idea about a resurrection, is that, is that sound like something that is desirable? You know, does that line up? And how does that integrate with what I believe? And so they're not searching uh, some external source, right? We're not searching what God had said, one, because they don't believe that, right? Um, they don't have the scriptures, uh, nor the day do they feel like that is their source of truth. And we encounter that all the time. You know, why does somebody believe what they believe? Well, I just feel like that. Or I just think that, you know, it just makes sense to me. And so we see a lot of that in, in what Paul is encountering for that. And so verse 21, when Luke kind of describes him, he's describing the, the culture in general, that they're curious to hear something new, but that's, how, that's all they spent their time doing, was hearing what was new, telling of new things, moving on to the next idea, moving on to the next um, project, moving on to the next whatever. And so we could probably just put ourselves in, in Paul's situation and think how, you know, do we ever find these encounters here in our own communities? Do we ever find these same scenarios here in our own, you know, uh, workplaces or neighborhoods or wherever in how we engage with the people that we engage with? We're going to take what Paul uh will say to them, but we have kind of a background and understanding of the culture that he's in, and then we'll kind of springboard from there and digest and, and dive into what is specifically said, because the content of what he said is really what a lot of people latch onto, and I think it's good to see how Paul shared the gospel and what he did to share the gospel with these people, and how much of the gospel that he shared with these people. So while Paul was just kind of summarized, while Paul was there, you know, he's, he's provoked by what he saw. Um, you know, we can pause and say, what is it that provokes us in, in our worlds? And that got him and stirred him up to share his faith. And so the sharing of his faith provoked others. Like that, it had a response in others that gave him a platform to speak. And so we'll pick up there next week and see... Uh, what it is that Paul said. But like we see again in the, the culture in Athens, we see a lot of parallels and similarities in our own culture today. Um, some dissimilarities, but others, there's a lot of things that we can see and help us to then springboard and say, you know, what did Paul say? What are the things that we can say as well? Uh, anything else kind of comment before we 